0: I have a question for you. You might think it's an odd question. My question for each of us is, do you have any person who you think will never become a Christian? Oh, out loud, you might not want to admit that. And I'm not proud of it, but sometimes in my Christian life, there have been people that I thought, frankly, it was impossible for them to repent, to trust Christ as Savior, and to be born again. And in so doing, I'm not proud to say I gave myself some kind of permission to stop praying for them and to stop seeing the hope of heaven as something that was legitimate and likely for them? And so do you have someone that in the honesty of your mind and heart, you would have to admit to God, I don't see them getting saved. I've shared the gospel with them maybe and they've rejected it and me and they seem like a hopeless case. If you feel that way in the quietness of your own heart and mind, the cure for that is to pray for the salvation of that individual all the more earnestly. The atheist with whom you go to University of the Bahamas. The faculty member at the University of Bahamas who may be an atheist that teaches you. The members of the gangs in our city. Vladimir Putin. In the late 1980s, when I was pastoring in Canada, every week I prayed for the most infamous abortion doctor in Canada to be saved by Jesus Christ. And somehow, it seemed to me at least, in the circles within which I moved, it seemed to me that I was one of very, very, very few Christians who were praying for Jewish Dr. Henry Morgenthaler to trust Christ for salvation before he died. And yet, the Lord Jesus' own words are still in our Bibles in Matthew 19, verse 26. With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Do you believe that? With God, all things are possible. And today's verses report on one of the most famous conversions in all of the Bible. And as I've been saying, it's Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. And we're going to be reading through the verses, and I'm going to be stopping as we do so to make some comments and observations. So let me begin with Acts 9 and verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and I'll stop at the end of verse 1. Have you ever noticed in your own lives that after a spiritual mountaintop experience that often it is followed with a spiritual valley? That after you've been on top of answered prayer and seeing God move in mighty ways, that sometimes that high point is followed by a low point in the valley and your prayers seem not to be heard by God. Of course they are. It Seems like God isn't working in your valley. But of course he is, he works the night shift, in fact, he doesn't sleep, he doesn't slumber nor sleep. And so my first thought with you is that when chapter eight concluded, the apostles were on a spiritual mountaintop. I mean, the Holy Spirit had put Philip in the right place at the right time, And the Ethiopian treasure to the queen was readied by the Holy Spirit to want the Bible first and to want the Savior second. These are mountaintop realities. And then pretty much immediately, that believing Ethiopian eunuch asked to be water baptized. Wow. And if that wasn't enough, the Holy Spirit then miraculously snatched Philip up, miraculously, and took him supernaturally, transported him to his next ministry assignment. That is a mountaintop experience of joy, of excitement, A blessing, inspirational mountaintop. But next came an intimidating spiritual valley. Going on to read verse 1 and 2 again. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked. Letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were on the way, capital W, way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This gentleman named Saul was a Pharisee and he had a Pharisaical attitude of superiority and pride relative to Gentiles for sure and relative to Jewish converts to Christ And by the time of the action of Acts chapter 9, this Saul was known for threatening Christians with arrest or even murder. And so it's time for our first observation from the text, and it's this. Christianity was called the way. Verse two, and he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Christianity was first called the way. That's a real good label. Since our Lord Jesus said of himself in John 14, verse six, I am the way. And so those who would love Christ the way would be called the way. Those who would follow Christ in the way would walk in the way. It was a great name for the fledging church. And as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what Calvary Bible Church is all about, producing fully committed followers of Christ, when the text says to us, do something, we don't hesitate, we don't waffle, we don't make excuses, we do it. Fully committed followers of Jesus Christ and bold witness of the gospel, fully committed followers of Christ to lovingly confront sin with one another if necessary, the way. The first church was called the way because Jesus Christ, the head of that church, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so, what about this way? Well, we hear more about this way in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. The verse goes like this. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, watch now, for doctrine. That, the Bible is saying, this is the right way. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, secondly, for reproof. That's saying, hey, you're off of the right way. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, third, for correction. That is, here's how to get back on the way. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable forth for instruction in righteousness. Here's how you stay on the way. So it's very fitting that the first church is called the way. And the application for us is twofold. The application first is that we ought to be in the way. (laughs) We ought to be in Christ, and we are from the point of our salvation, to stay abiding in him so that we can be fruitful. He's the vine, we're the branches, that we be in union with him, and that his everlasting, eternal life would course through our bodies and our opportunities and our words and our thoughts and our actions. second application not only are we to be in the way in Christ but we are to be on the way we are to be following Christ moving not in a state of the analysis of paralysis not spinning our wheels not putting our lives in park until we are older or till we're more educated or until we have a better more comfortable job or we have more discretionary time on our hands. We may never have more discretionary time on our hands. Are we going to serve Christ with the time we do have? And so the first observation is that the Christian, Christianity and the church specifically was called the way. The second observation, I see it in verses 3 and 4, is this. Christ found Saul, Saul did not find Christ. Christ found Saul, Saul did not find Christ. I see that in verses three and four. As he, that is Saul, journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Christ found Saul. Saul didn't find Christ. Saul was on the road to Damascus for one reason. Then the risen Christ came to that road to Damascus for a very different reason, for a very more important reason, for an eternal reason Christ came to the road to Damascus. Remember, the Lord Jesus made it clear in John 15, verse 16, the following Jesus words, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. And so on that road to Damascus, on that fateful day of the most famous conversion in all of the Bible, perhaps, Christ initiated. Christ revealed himself with a brighter than sunlight light to Saul, so much so that it damaged his eyes. And Christ revealed himself with an audible words in the Aramaic language that the Lord Jesus would have spoken. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Christ chose Saul. Saul didn't choose Christ. Saul didn't find Christ either. Christ found Saul. Christ wasn't lost, Saul was lost. Now, that our Lord Jesus Christ chooses should not be a surprise to us if we're students of the Bible. Because it's God's prerogative, is it not to choose? God chose Israel to be his nation. God chose certain angels to be holy. God chose certain humans to be saved. And when illustrating salvation, the Lord Jesus spoke about a shepherd leaving the ninety and nine and going after the one lost sheep. He didn't speak about the one lost sheep going after the shepherd. That's significant. And yes, it is God's prerogative to choose. God chose, as you know, certain believers to do things for his glory in certain ways. He chose Adam, he chose Eve, he chose Noah and Abraham. He chose Moses and Rahab and Ruth and David and Daniel. God chose Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the Jesus' 12 disciples. And God chose, yes, Saul, later named Paul. And God chose reactionary, big-mouthed Peter. And God chose the 40 inspired authors who over 1,600 years wrote scripture under the inspiration of God, Genesis through Revelation. God chose those 40 authors to do that. God chooses you. You don't choose God. Now if that troubles you, that God chose you and you didn't choose God, if that troubles you, let me ask you, shouldn't the bridegroom have the right to choose his bride? And so observation two is that Christ found Saul, but Saul didn't find Christ. And so there's an application here. Share the gospel every time you can. Don't miss a time. Nominate as many lost people as you can for salvation, and you will see conversions. Why? Because God has elected individuals for salvation. Dwight L. Moody, a renowned evangelist in Chicago, when trying to explain the doctrine of election to someone who didn't fully understand or accept it, he said, I've noticed that nobody walks around in life with a big capital letter E on their back so that I can know who's elect. So what I do, Moody said, is I share the gospel with every single person I meet. I can't elect anybody for salvation, but I can do all the nominating I want. That's good. I told you before, in Canada, my parents bought some acreage outside of Toronto, and 33 acres, and they developed it with an A-frame cottage and a homemade bass pond. 16 feet deep, the bass pond was, and we stocked it with bass. And the Ministry of Natural Resources who came out to see the transfer of the little bass fish that were going into our pond, he had to be there to make sure it was done properly. He said after 100 little tiny bass fish were put into our acre-sized pond, he said, you know, if you won't fish them for the first two years, it will be impossible for you to fish them out. So you know my favorite place to fish? (laughs) Is that pond. I knew there were fish in there. I knew they were hungry. I would catch a bass almost on every cast of my lure. It spoiled me on fishing anywhere else. Election to salvation is like that it ought to be. That because God has stalked the pond with individuals he purposes to save, we share the gospel and we will see God save people. And so the second observation is that Christ found Saul. Saul didn't find Christ. The third observation from this famous conversion account is that when the church is persecuted, like it is in the Ukraine and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and Afghanistan, when the church of Jesus Christ is persecuted, the Lord Jesus Christ is persecuted. That's the forensic connection between the church of Jesus Christ and the head of the church, the Lord Jesus. Jesus made it clear, you're persecuting me when you persecute Christians. Because he asked, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The church, of course, is the bride of Christ. He's our bridegroom, we're his bride. Beth is my bride. I'll tell you something, if you harass Beth, I'll consider that you've harassed me. I don't think any of you harassed Beth. You love us and we appreciate that. When the church is persecuted, the Lord Jesus Christ is also persecuted. So be careful not to say negative things about the body and bride of Christ called Calvary Bible Church. When we're out there, wherever we are, outside of the campus of the church, our comments about the church must always be positive, worshipful, grateful, hopeful. Because if we gossip negative things about our church family, it not only hurts our church family, it hurts the head of this church, the Lord Jesus. On to observation four. When you get saved, you're clearly different. A person who is genuinely saved is not the same after their conversion as they were before their conversion. And if they're just the same as they were before their conversion, we have reason to ask were they really converted? When you get saved, you're clearly different. Look how different Saul was. I'm reading verses five through 19. And when he said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's like a sharpened stick. So trembling and astonished, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? You've asked the Lord that lately. That's not just a good question for when you're getting saved. That's a very good question for when you're getting sanctified. Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless. These persecutors going to Damascus to arrest or to kill Christians in Damascus. They see this, they hear this, and the text says they're speechless. (laughs) I guess so. The men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. He was blind. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight. That would have been scary. So much for the prosperity gospel that you're always healthy, wealthy, and wise if you become a Christian. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. That's a good sanctification answer. Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. And for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, "Lord, I have heard from many about this man; how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name." See, they the way had heard about it. The way had knew that Saul was on the way, not on the way of belief, but on the way of to get them for persecution. Fifteen. But the Lord said to him, "Go." For he is a chosen vessel of mine. Can you imagine what Ananias must have thought? I know this guy, he arrests Christians, he's wreaked havoc in Jerusalem, and he's going to be praying? And he's a chosen vessel of yours, Lord? Really? But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings and all the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. God's will for the new convert Saul was not health wealth happiness and his best life now. God's will was initial blindness that never really got fully corrected and suffering. What is your theology of suffering? Does it mean God's punishing you? Does it mean you've lost your salvation? Does it mean that you have a right to grumble to God for suffering? God says, this new convert who's temporarily blind, he's my chosen instrument to take the gospel to Gentiles and kings and to sons of Israel, and he's gonna suffer. He's gonna suffer for his whole public ministry. For my name's sake, he's gonna suffer. 17, And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, that took faith. Public enemy number one, blind, vulnerable, can't see a thing. But on the basis of that vision from God, Ananias obeyed and risked and trusted God that he called it accurately. And he calls them brother Saul. Wow. Every time you call a male in this congregation brother or you call a female in this congregation sister, you are affirming and reminding the fact that we are accepted in the beloved, we're in one adoptive family, and that we are in this together. Amen? Amen. Brother Saul, Ananias' words. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and he was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples in Damascus. Imagine the turn of events. He went to Damascus to arrest those Christians and he spent several days after conversion fellowshipping with them, sharing meals, sharing prayer requests, learning about the scriptures probably. I love it. When you get saved, you're clearly different. And dramatically meeting and hearing the risen Lord Jesus Christ caused Saul to place saving faith in Christ. And then Saul was dramatically changed. Let's observe just how he was radically changed after his conversion. I see seven ways in verses five to 19 that I've just read. Number one, his eyesight was never what it once was. In the book of Galatians, he said that my scribe is going to finish writing this because I are not going to finish writing it, pardon me. I'm going to finish Galatians the book with my own hand. See how large the letters are in my own hand because he couldn't even see the manuscript. He couldn't see the transcript. He couldn't see the parchment. He never fully recovered from his eye problems, I believe. He was different. Number two, he was different after conversion. He got his marching orders from Christ and no longer from the chief priests of the Jews. Third, he was different after conversion. His life's work became reaching Gentiles for Christ, no longer interpreting God's laws for the Jews. That's what Pharisees did. He was different after he became a Christian in that he found out that his destiny was suffering and not climbing up the religious ladder of success in Jerusalem suffering. He became different after he was saved. He became filled with the Holy Spirit and no longer filled with himself. Philippians three, read his religious resume. If anybody could boast in his religiosity, it was Saul turned Paul. But he became filled with the Holy Spirit and he no longer was filled with himself. Number six, he was different after he was saved because he gained a new spiritual family of fellow believers. He called, after Ananias called him brother, he called Ananias brother, I'm sure. He got a whole new spiritual family. He didn't go back to the Pharisees' little clubhouse to be a pedigreed Pharisee. And seventh and last from these verses at least, when he trusted Jesus to be his savior and was regenerated and saved from his sins, he went public about his new faith in Christ by being water baptized. These are seven ways that Paul was clearly different after his conversion from Acts 9, 5 to 19. And I alluded to Philippians 3, 4 to 11, listen to Paul's own inspired description of how he was clearly different after his conversion. This is right between the eyes. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He was not just a Pharisee, the other Pharisees looked up to him for his training and his knowledge. But he's going to say something about all this. Verse 7. But the things that were gained to me, I have counted but loss for Christ. I've written them off. They're not in play in my life anymore. It's not my identity where it once was. But the things which were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Scubula. Human waste. He says, all that other stuff that I hung my hat on, that made me important, that gave me a social status, of respect in the Jewish community, it's all like scubala. Human waste. I have suffered the loss of all things by my own righteousness, which is from the law, but th- that which is through, in Christ, the righteousness which is formed, excuse me, from God by faith that I may know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. When was the last time I thanked God that I could fellowship with my Savior in his sufferings? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's a 180 degree turnaround, friends. And so, observation four is that when you get saved, you're clearly different. Are you clearly different? Are you a camouflaged Christian? You just blend in with the world. You just don't rock the boat. You keep your faith very personal, very secret, very private. Or do people know you're clearly different? She won't do that because I know Christ wouldn't do that. He won't say that because he follows Christ. No, he's not thinking that because he wouldn't let himself think that because that's a sinful way to think. Is that your reputation? That you're distinctly, clearly, permanently, unwaveringly different than you used to be? Or do you go to the same parties and bars that you used to? Or can you slip out with foul language when people around you do? Or do you take attending worship at the church as optional if nothing better comes along? Are we clearly different? A truly saved person is clearly different. And so the application here would be, be clearly different. Don't go back to once you, what you once were before you were saved. Take the roadways out of the vices you used to partake in as a one-way road out of them and no way back. It's against the road. It's against the way. This week, how about making two lists? How about making two lists? Ready? The first list I invite you to make this week is before Christ dot, dot, dot. And then you think about how you used to think before Christ, how you used to live before Christ, and in point form, put things under before Christ. That's your first list. I'm giving some examples. Before Christ, money was my God. No one could tell me anything. I used people and I loved myself. Lying was easy. I saw no need for Christ or his church. These are samples of how some of us fought and lived before we were saved. I felt it was okay because I was not as bad as some of my friends. The Bible seemed boring to me. I had a secret life. Could you make a list this week of how you lived and thought before Christ? And could you make a second list, a happier list? Could you make a second list that would be after Christ dot, 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 after Christ dot, dot, dot. For instance, after Christ, I don't have any idols in my life. Christ is everything to me. After Christ, I'm humble and grateful. I love people and I want to see them get saved. My conscience tells me when I've disobeyed God, after Christ, Christ is my Lord and my Savior in my life and I submit myself to him. After Christ, I love and I want to be with my church family every chance I get. After Christ, the Bible guides every part of my life. After Christ, my life is an open book for anybody to read. I have no secrets. I have no hidden sins. What you see is what you get. God has made me transparent. God has made me consistent. God has made me holy. That would be two good lists to make this week. Before Christ, after Christ, and if you are Growing as a believer, these two lists are very different. Very, very different from each other. Now, if you have a hard time thinking about making those lists, here's my suggestion. You go to a friend or your spouse or someone who knows you and have them make the list for you. Well, before Christ, you were this and you did that. And after Christ, they see you being this way and doing that. That would be a helpful friend or spouse that could help you with these lists if you're lost. Now, we have seen the most famous conversion in scripture, I would submit. And we have seen that first place, Christianity was called the way. Are you on the way? When you got saved, Christ puts you on the way. I am the way, the truth and life. Are you still on the way? Christianity was called the way. Second observation, Christ found Saul. Saul didn't find Christ. Who is Christ wanting to find for salvation through your sphere of influence? The Ethiopian eunuch was reading Isaiah 53, one of the most Christological Old Testament chapters, because Christ was finding the Ethiopian eunuch and he sent Philip to him. Christ found Saul. Saul didn't find Christ. Third observation is that when Christ is persecuted, the church is persecuted. And when the church is persecuted, Christ is persecuted. No negative talk about our church. If you have a problem You want to talk about, talk with me or one of the elders. We'll talk with you. I don't think you have problems. Good preaching is preventative maintenance, not just corrective maintenance. And when you're saved, you're clearly different. Oh, I would love it when people call me odd. I think it's great when they say he marches to a different drummer. I think they say, always talking about Jesus. I love it. He gives a certain percentage to his church and he's happy to do it. Are we clearly different? Being clearly different will honor God and being clearly different will be used of the Holy Spirit to draw lost people to salvation. If I did a show of hands this morning, which I won't, if I did a show of hands, how many of you were interested to know about Christ because of a solid, good, living testimony of someone you knew, there'd be a lot of hands up. Living clearly different is so important in witnessing. Someone says, the pastor unemployment and crime in Nassau and NASA and uh, sickness and a lot of deaths and, you know, yes, and I'm sorry for that. But you know, on Bay Street, where the ship lets off the cruise guests, do you know what color velvet they show their best diamonds on? It's black. And against the jet black background of our personal life circumstances and our city circumstances and our national circumstances, the diamond of the gospel is gonna be brilliant against the black backdrop of a Country, culture, saturated with sin. Share your faith. Live your faith. Be different than you were before Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for saving Saul. We thank you for finding him in the person of Christ, finding him on the road. Thank you that he responded in faith. Thank you that you moved him to write 60% of the New Testament. Lord, May we be on the way. May we understand that you've found us. May we decline to badmouth the church so we don't badmouth Christ. And may we be clearly different. All to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name and God's body and bride said, Amen. Amen.